0: I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. There is no denying that the public remains fascinated with monarchy. In the United Kingdom, the royal family commands the headlines, but paradoxically, they're a distant and knowable force all at the same time. The Queen is an iconic yet reserved figure, what with the kerchiefs, the corgis, and the deftly delivered speeches at state occasions. The younger royals seem to be interested in keeping it real, engaging different publics while maintaining the firm's commitment to service to the nation. Like Greek gods or reality show contestants, when it comes to the royals, we all have our favorites. We've come a long way from the 18th century when monarchs were branded as tyrants. At least that's the impression we get if we read the great monarchical anti-monarchical voices of the Enlightenment. For Thomas Paine, Monarchy and Succession Have Laid the World in Blood and Ashes. But lately, historians have been taking a second look at the place of monarchy in the history of a global British Empire. Hannah Muller is Assistant Professor of History at Brandeis University. In Subjects and Sovereign, Bonds of Belonging in the 18th Century British Empire, she shows that the relationship between subjects and sovereign was defined by complex and shared bonds. The book takes us around the British Empire from Quebec to Gibraltar to Calcutta, and reveals the ways in which the status of subject bound the empire together. Hannah Muller joins me from Boston. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Charles.
0: So the book um, is an object lesson in a whole series of serial contexts, and we'll get to that in a, in a bit. But Broadly speaking, uh, what was it that led you to choose this as a topic for graduate study to transform it into a thesis, and then we have the finished product in front of us? What led you up to this topic?
1: Well, you know, I actually started in the 19th century, at least the early 19th century. And in my first two years of graduate school, I was exploring, uh, in particular, a petition from the East Indians of Calcutta a petition that was submitted to the British Parliament in 1830. The East Indians of Calcutta, later referred to and sometimes referred to as Eurasians or Anglo-Indians, depending on the context, were the children of British soldiers or British officers and uh, Indian women. And in 1830, they submitted this petition asking to be recognized and to have their rights as British subjects recognized and not to be classed and treated as natives of India. And of course, this was one of those questions submitted to Parliament that went into a select committee and there was no resolution. And as I was trying to understand the terms and the shape of this debate, I found myself needing to ask questions about, well, how is subject status defined? And what were the rights uh, that these individuals thought were their due? And in trying to find answers to that, I actually, I think as historians so often do, started moving back in time. Uh, looking for a lot of answers in some of the legal treatises, not necessarily finding the ones I wanted, not finding answers about what were the so-called rights fully associated with being a British subject. And I ultimately decided that the way to try to get at this question was to pick a moment in time, a moment where these questions were asked simultaneously in a number of different places in order to look at the range and the diversity of individuals and administrators grappling with this question and to try to answer it that way. Because it was clear to me that there was not a clear or a clear enough answer, by just consulting some of the case law or the limited number of statutes that address this question. And so I moved backwards in time. I settled on the period after the Seven Years' War, but it really was that 1830 petition from the East Indians of Calcutta that launched this project.
0: Awesome. So you talk about the the book uh, is broadly pitched about the the bonds that tied people together, and when you, when you move back, your, your starting point uh, for the main chronology of the book is, is as you say, the Seven Years' War. Uh, but in order to excavate uh, or recover some texture of the bonds that did tie English people to their sovereign, you have to go back uh, even further than that. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about some of the points of orientation that people used to define what a subject was.
1: Sure. And without being too specific, I think the, the foundational one for legal historians and for historians more generally really has always been the 1608 ruling in Calvin's case. Um, that is the case that is seen as foundational. It has been viewed as establishing a sort of territorially expansive understanding of subjecthood for the British Empire. Uh, And I very much go to that case and look at subsequent cases, but then I'm also thinking about what beyond these foundational cases would have been working to shape these legal understandings. I'm simultaneously then trying to interweave what I call a more popular tradition of declaring rights. So there are, of course, legal understandings, some of which are written down, some of which are incredibly important and written down multiple times. But then there is this very rich tradition of published declarations of what I would call published declarations of rights and these are, I mean, one could begin with Magna Carta, the petition of right, one could even include the agreement of 1649, but there are then charters of liberties drawn up in many of the colonies. There are then all kinds of pamphlets that address the freeborn subject's inheritance. And what I'm trying to do is sort of think about these 17th and 18th century contexts that really do link a tradition of claiming and declaring rights to the bond with the monarch and to the centrality of this relationship of obedience and protection.
0: So these texts are uh, scattered all over the place. And for those of us who are uh, specialists, say, in the political history of early modern Britain, we're used to talking in terms of Britain's ancient or unwritten constitution. But conscious that some of the people listening to us Uh, will be uh, coming from a tradition where constitutions are written down. Mm -hmm. If you want to know the rights of the citizen, uh, all you need to do is look at the amendments to the constitution and and they're there, even though obviously they're endlessly debatable. Um, how, How did the unwritten constitution function in this definition of the rights of subjects and the identity of subjects?
1: Sure. And it's a wonderful question because this, this question of the unwritten constitution and Uh, whether this is a problem, whether it provides opportunities is such a rich one. And I view it very much in this context as providing incredible flexibility, incredible opportunity in the sense that it was frustrating for me as a researcher to try to answer this question of, well, where are the rights of subjects actually codified? How can I get at them? Only to realize that Precisely because they're not all written down, that gives this incredible opportunity to subjects themselves to invent, to imagine, to assert, to redefine those rights depending on the context they're in. And I suppose this isn't in and of itself a totally new conclusion, though I think my emphasis on sort of the active participation of subjects is is one of the things I'm most invested in. Uh, But it is something I, I don't think historians have necessarily given enough weight to, the ways in which in a traditional bond, in leveraging the relationship with a monarch, is the possibility for what individuals at the time are calling rights, liberties, and privileges? And is the possibility to make those claims, to actively make those claims within a traditional monarchical setting?
0: Hmm. And the, the, I think that this raises an interesting question too about, about context because the unwritten constitution gives us a whole series of possible Uh, lines of precedent on on which we can draw. And as you say, uh, it's interpreted flexibility. I wonder, though, um, in terms of context, where your story begins, uh, 1763 is a particular juncture uh, in British history, uh, possibly unprecedented in the sense that uh, Britain finds itself um, in 1763 ruling over, or at least claiming, uh, rule over uh, an extensive, globally extensive, culturally diverse lands and peoples. Um, Can you take us through that transformation? um, And what sort of empire uh, does Britain have as it emerges out the other end of the Seven Years' War? I realize that's a very big question.
1: Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think the reason this is such a foundational moment for me is that the sheer number of new territories and new peoples that are brought into the British Empire in all kinds of ways, some of them are allegedly ceded, some of them are conquered Um This marks a transformation in terms of the sheer diversity of this empire. So this old claim that in the early 18th century, it was still possible to refer to this as a Protestant and a maritime empire and an empire in which subjects were largely English settlers. Now, we know there are all kinds of problems with that characterization to begin with, but that is by no means, it would be impossible to try to characterize the post-1763 empire in this way. And the transfer of this many territories and peoples raises these questions about how to integrate new peoples, some of whom are non-white, some of whom are non-Protestant. This raises these questions of integration and how to recognize status and how to grant or recognize rights with increasing intensity. So it's not that these questions aren't asked at other moments historically. I think these are foundational questions uh, throughout history, but that the moment of 1763 means that they're going to be asked in almost every territory, particularly that they're going to be asked simultaneously, and that we're able to sort of see not only the simultaneity, but the diversity of ways in which those claims and those demands are made. Hmm.
0: So the the moment of 1763 is, is one of uh, global imperial transformation, but the the relationship uh, between monarchs and their subjects in English history, you mentioned Magna Carta, is is colorful, uh, to say the least. <laughs> um, um, and in the 17th century, we have an example in the English Civil War where the bond uh, between the king and his subjects, or some of them, uh, fractured with pretty spectacular results. And Charles I is executed, and England becomes, uh, for 11 years of its history, a kind of republic. So in this new imperial world, um, how did those tensions, uh, how were bonds of subjecthood, how were they, how were they broken, um, how were they stretched, what were the things that, uh, that, that tested them?
1: Sure. And I, and I think to answer your question, I, I also have to go back to the question of this post-1763 period, which is a period in which not only are there so many new territories and peoples being added to the empire, but the empire itself, its administrators are profoundly dependent on these new peoples and on these new territories and need to come up with ways of integrating and binding them. So it's not that this the the relationship between monarch and subjects which is often tenuous suddenly ceases to be tenuous, but that leveraging it becomes a key way of imagining and of binding individuals. What can fray it? Um, are when individuals are suspect, when they're not seen as being potentially loyal. And, And I think this is most evident in some of the case studies I use, particularly the ones from Grenada and Quebec, where there is an attempt to grant rights to French Catholic, quote, new subjects that are not granted to Roman Catholics in other parts of the empire. And this is in large part because these individuals are needed. Their expertise, their lands, their skills are needed. And so the willingness to leverage that bond, both on the part of the individuals themselves who actively claim that they are entitled to the rights of British subjects and actively seek to define what that means, and then the interests of administrators who also wish to bind these property and individuals to the empire, mean that both are simultaneously seeking to leverage these bonds. Uh, when that loyalty is then questioned. And and in Grenada, this happens in particular in 1779, where the French uh, invade and are going to occupy once again, and many of the French Catholic new subjects switch sides. Um, When the British then retake the island in the 1780s, There is a a retreat in terms of the willingness to recognize the subject status of these French Catholics and to grant many of the rights that had been granted in the 1760s and 1770s because that allegiance, the potential Loyalty to the monarch has really been questioned. So these moments of loyalty being questioning, these moments when international war either looms or actually occurs, are the moments that I see the greatest potential for a fraying and a questioning and a a curtailing of this potentially inclusive definition of subjecthood and granting of the rights of subjects
0: so is so is it fair to say then that one one thing driving this approach on the part of the imperial state if we can call it that is mm-hmm. is that the the sort of the the vagaries of, of rule make it necessary to make a series of sort of pragmatic concessions and they use the idea of subjecthood as as a way of of projecting rule uh, in in ways that they were sort of in, in some ways militarily prohibited from doing because of the size and the distance is is it a way of overcoming, uh, the uh, or compensating for, you might say the weakness of the imperial state is that fair to say.
1: I think that's a wonderful way to think about it. I think there's very much an aspect of utility, a question of what does local exigency mean? Administrators are willing to countenance. Uh, So that very much is playing into what is happening on the ground. One of the arguments I'm making in the book is that subjecthood as a concept really is working, or at least I argue it's working, uh, to bind the empire at what I would call both a symbolic, but then also a very functional level. And this is in response to this question of, is it the vagaries of rule? Is it the needs of rule? So there's a symbolic way in which being able to claim that everyone in the empire is a subject and the ways in which individuals who are subjects can lay claim to that simultaneously. This is creating a kind of performance of loyalty. The iteration of that loyalty is important in symbolically binding individuals to an empire. But there, I don't think subjecthood would have been so important had it only been symbolic. I think there are incredibly important ways in which it then functions and serves the needs of empire. Uh, And so the examples I was giving of Grenada and Quebec, where there is a reliance on the planters, on those who hold lands. In other areas, there's going to be a reliance on the Genoans who man some of the fishing boats and who provision Gibraltar. There are not enough other individuals in some of these territories, and the imperial state, to use that phrase, Needs them. So the question then becomes this dialogue about what individuals believe their rights as subjects may be, and then what administrators are willing and able to recognize or grant as rights, as liberties, and as privileges. <laughs>
0: Excellent. So we've talked about uh, how light, uh, rights have been framed in the sources. I want to get to the, the contexts, uh, which is really the, the, the center uh, of the book. Uh, you, you've devoted three chapters to a, a series of, of contexts where, where this can be seen to be operating. Um, I wonder if you can sort of take us through or around uh, your, your, I get almost a, a set of imperial horizons or peripheries, Mm-hmm. Uh, and talk to us about uh, how does the idea of the subject function in the different contexts that you, you place it in and where you're, you're, you're paying attention to, to discourse about it?
1: Sure. No, thank you for that question. And I I suppose maybe what I should do is just explain what each of the chapters does and then focus on the three that are what I call the case study chapters. Uh, So the the first chapter is sort of attempt to come to terms with what I call the many legal understandings of subjecthood throughout the empire in a variety of different contexts. The second is the chapter we've briefly mentioned where I look at this more popular tradition of declaring rights, which very much shapes then what's happening in each of the case studies. The third chapter focuses on Menorca and Gibraltar and the ways in which the rights of subjects were defined there. The fourth on Grenada and Quebec and the ways in which the rights of subjects were defined there. And then, of course, the final one really focuses on Calcutta and the Supreme Court of Judicature there. So I think in each of these case studies, what I've tried to do, in, in part because there were so many case studies that I might have selected, there, there is, excuse me, a, a wonderful <laughs> wealth of options, what I tried to do with the selection was to put into conversation Uh, What we might call sort of plantation or farming colonies with what we might call strategic outposts or military garrisons with what we might call colonies based more on trade colonies administered or a colony administered by the East India Company. And this was to put into conversation the British Atlantic, the British Mediterranean, and British Asia. Um, And it was also to enable me to get at this array of differing local exigencies, which I believed were at the root of how subject status was being defined. I also, as part of this, wanted to make sure that the conversation about subject status wasn't just a conversation about loyalists versus patriots or about settlers versus indigenous populations, all of which are very important questions. But I wanted to move into an argument about how subject status was omnipresent, how it affected all kinds of individuals, and how even the status of continental Europeans in the British Empire was at stake with all of this. And so most of my case studies are focused on the status predominantly of French and Spanish Catholics who move into the British Empire after 1763. There are some exceptions to that based on the case studies. And they're designed to really look at what were the dominant concerns post-1763. So in the case of Grenada and Quebec, we have the issue of needing to maintain this small number of propertied individuals who can help contribute to the imperial state and to maintaining British power on the ground. Um, That chapter is also really a Attempting to show the ways in which subjects themselves were interlocutors, the ways in which they actively shaped and participated in the shaping of these rights. And the rights at stake in Grenada and Quebec are more political and legal. So in the case of Grenada, the right at stake is whether all British subjects have a right to uh, participate in representative assemblies, whether by voting or by sitting in those assemblies, and whether all British subjects, meaning British subjects who are also Catholics, can have that right. In Quebec, the question is, which law, which civil law is a British subject entitled to have. And ultimately, the Quebec Act of 1774, which grants the French Catholics access to their own civil law, would seem to suggest that indeed, the right of British subjects is to be subject to the, quote, laws of their ancestors, whether those laws are British "Quote, quote," <laughs> or French uh, in Menorca and Gibraltar, the rights in question are more about economic protections, and this is very much shaped by the realities of life in the Mediterranean and in these strategic outposts. These many of which have military garrisons, they tend to be focused on whether all British subjects have the right to protective Mediterranean passes, and whether All British subjects have a right to be redeemed from captivity in North Africa should they be captured in supplying the garrisons. And so, what happens there is um, an attempt to renegotiate. Well, do Genoans who bring fishing boats into Gibraltar and have done so for several decades can they be counted as British subjects? What needs to be happen? What needs to happen? Excuse me for them to be counted as British subjects in order to secure Mediterranean passes uh, or in order to be redeemed from captivity. And that chapter is very much also attempting to show the ways in which the decisions of individual colonial administrators were instrumental In making these determinations, whether a colonial administrator chose to insist that an individual be granted a Mediterranean pass was at the foundation of whether that individual was then counted as a British subject. And then the final chapter, uh, the chapter on Calcutta, is looking at the role particularly of the Supreme Court of Judicature, which is founded in 1773 as part of the 1773 Regulating Act over the East India Company, and is examining the ways in which the roles uh, and the interests of judges who were seeking often to extend royal authority at the expense of the East India Company, and this is related to the incredibly complex politics of the 1770 But loosely speaking, they were essentially they essentially had a vested interest in counting individuals as subject because then those individuals were quote, subject to the court's jurisdiction, which in turn was extending royal jurisdiction at the expense of the East India Company. Uh, And so that chapter is very much looking at the reasons that subjecthood and jurisdiction are often, they're, they're two sides of the same coin on occasion, and the reasons that judges might have played a critical role in establishing understandings of how subject status was to be accorded.
0: So this question about all the different contexts in which subjecthood uh, crops up in the book, Calcutta, uh, Grenada, Quebec, uh, and in the Mediterranean, these are all very different places. And I'm wondering, uh, to what extent is this idea of subjecthood used as a way of working towards a concept of liberty that's rooted in an English tradition, even though it's contested and faulted, uh, rather than uh, some of the alternatives, uh, for example, uh, the Republican tradition. I and mean, what would you have to say about that? Is that, is that a plausible sort of hypothesis?
1: Thank you for asking this question, because I think one of the things I'm very much trying to do with this book is to insist on the relevance of this so-called traditional bond between subject and sovereign, a bond that is allegedly then severed in so many parts of the world during the age of revolutions, to insist on its relevance in a process of claims-making in the 18th century, in a process of claiming rights, liberties, privileges. And this is very much a tradition that I see as rooted in the relationship with the monarch and in arguably older understandings of English liberties. Um, And there's a small part in the book where I'm trying to tease out why do we get this phrase, British, quote, rights, liberties, and privileges. Sometimes there's also then immunities and franchises linked in. Why do we have all of those together, particularly in the later 18th century, where there is this uh, increasingly rich and wonderful language of natural rights that's also emerging? How is this happening? And how is it that British subjects are using a language of rights alongside this language of privilege, which we often associate as being a privilege granted by the monarch or granted by a corporation. And one of the things I argue is happening is that British subjects are essentially using whatever they can to figure out how to get what they want. (laughs) So Mm. if that is a language of rights, sometimes that's an old concept of rights, a concept of rights that's rooted in land, that's rooted in ownership, that's rooted in ancient inheritance. Sometimes it may be a newer understanding of rights that are a birthright, rights that are natural. And all of those are coexisting in this concept, just as these ideas of liberties. Are these more 17th century concepts of liberties? Are these late 18th century concepts of liberties? I think all of them are often at play so that subjects are sometimes claiming they're owed rights, liberties, and privileges because they are loyal to the monarch. Sometimes they're claiming because it's they've shown loyal service. Uh, There's so many reasons they try to make these claims. And I think this phrase, rights, liberties, and privileges, reminds us that these discourses don't have to be either or, that they become a shared language, and that individuals are going to use them in the ways that serves them best. The distinction, though, I think in the British case, is that almost always these rights, liberties, and privileges are linked to the relationship with the monarch. And that is rooted in a concept of allegiance that is a so-called reciprocal concept of allegiance, the notion that a subject owes obedience. And because of that obedience that is performed, the monarch then owes protection. Protection of course, can come in so many different forms. it can come as quote protection, but it can also come in the upholding of rights, liberties, and privileges. It can come in the form of the monarch being the guarantor of those rights, liberties, and privileges
0: hmm. so the that leads us, I suppose naturally uh, to the question of the dissolution of bonds Um, and the dissolution of bonds within empire the 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 most obvious case is uh what takes place in 1776 but before we get to that um that the the big revolution question i'd like to sort of consider the the other big question which is about empire And, and you mentioned that um Prior to to 1763, the the general scholarly consensus now is that the the main attributes of the British Empire was that it was Protestant, it wasn't Spain, it wasn't France, it was maritime, it was an empire of the seas, it was commercial, it was an empire of commerce and trade, and above all, it was free. Um, How did the empire, how would you say the empire was presented um, in the latter half of the 18th century? Uh, as it's comprised of these diverse populations, uh, as it's characterized by flexible mm-hmm. uh, in, internal negotiation, um, how would you characterize it what is, what is, what do you think has changed?
1: sure and and i think some of what you're referring to may also be a trend which has which has tended to characterize the later 18th century british empire particularly that that, that sort of persists after the american revolutionary war mm. as one that sees an increasing centralization of power as one that often sees more uniform patterns of rule mm. and i think Part of what I am saying here is that if we look at something as flexible, as protean, as shifting, as subject status, there is also another view that We can take of this empire. This is an empire in which there is and there is multiplicity of law. And this is where the scholarship on legal pluralism is so important that there's not just one law, that there is not just one set of rights being granted. Rights are not uniform across this empire. That subject status is not, as Cook would have it, or as so many other legal historians in the 19th century tried to claim. Indelible. Allegiance shifts. Allegiance is transient. And that is something that's happening on the ground in this empire that's being recognized in treaties, that's being recognized by administrators, that's being recognized by inhabitants themselves even if it may not always be recognized in case law or in official government documents. So I think what a story, what a narrative about subjecthood really does is offer a view on the ways in which an empire can be both inclusive and profoundly exclusive at the same moment. And I'm reminded in this um, of a sort of foundational book for me in graduate school, which was Uday Singh Mehta's Liberalism and Empire, mm-hmm. where this, what felt to me like a profound revelation that political theories, that empires, that individuals aren't just exclusive or inclusive. They may be both at the same time. And to me, this story of subjecthood is one that allows me to show that in operation and to show that that is part of how empires work and concepts that allow them concepts or practices or languages that allow them to simultaneously include and exclude where needed are part of an essential way of, of governing and seeing empires.
0: And that takes us to whatever it is we should call Uh, The sundering of empire um, in the Atlantic, whether Mm -hmm. it's a a secessionist movement by 13 colonies, whether it's a civil war, whether it's a revolution, uh, a royalist revolution. Mm -hmm. But it's undoubted the Declaration of Independence begins precisely by invoking uh, the notion of the political bands or bonds that have tied one people to another. Um, And they're to be dissolved for the reasons that you've alluded to, the question of security. Um what does where does subject what happens to subjecthood why won't it why doesn't it hold through 1776 mm-hmm.
1: Well and you know it's funny I often find myself trying to answer this question by saying well it isn't going to hold everywhere but it mm-hmm. does hold in so many places it does continue to mm-hmm. be an organizing principle in so many other places The way I understand what is happening in 1776 is is exactly what you were referring to, because if we look at many of the documents from 1775, many of the same individuals who sever those bonds in 1776 are claiming that they're loyal subjects in 1775. And I think it is this sense of not having protection, not having security, not having the rights of British subjects upheld and a profound sense of betrayal that can lead to that severing. And and as I said earlier, in an empire where loyalty is seen as essential, that is, even though it takes the British crown a while longer to recognize that that allegiance has really been severed, um, it is recognized. That's one story. And it's an incredibly important story. I don't want to take away from that in any way, nor do I want to take away from the narrative of the 1790s and the central importance of the French Revolution, when again, many of these similar bonds are being severed. But I am trying to take seriously some of these practices and concepts. And what I see as organizing principles of the 18th century, that yes, there are revolutions, there are important revolutions that do change the course of modern history. At the same time, the vitality and the relevance of this bond between subjects and their sovereign continues. And arguably is indicative of another worldview, another worldview that will persist alongside the view that it is citizens who are loyal to their nation states. Um, And so I'm, I'm really just trying to insist that we continue to take seriously this question of What it means to be a British subject, that phrase is omnipresent once one starts looking for it. But the question of what it means, how it was used, how seriously I do think it was taken um, is one I think we do have to continue to answer.
0: Thank you so much. I've been talking to Hannah Muller, who's the author of Subjects and Sovereign Bonds of Belonging in the 18th Century British Empire. Hannah, thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Thanks for hosting me.